Hello, comedy fans. Hans Kim is a stand-up comedian who has seen his stock explode over the last year as a result of him becoming a regular on the Kill Tony podcast, while also regularly opening for Tony Hinchcliffe and Joe Rogan. And Hans is hosting a stand-up show this Sunday at Vulcan Gas Company. You can go to VulcanATX.com to grab yourself some tickets, find out more info as well. And now, my conversation with Hans Kim. So it's Hans Kim Presents, a stand-up comedy showcase of funny and talented people who live in Austin, Texas, or are traveling through who may or may not have been on Kill Tony before. Yeah. Did you come up with that name? Yeah. (laughs) I was trying to make it, uh, you know, ironic or like meta. Um, But yeah, I mean... uh, my Tony Hinchcliffe isn't really a fan of the title. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I thought it would be funny just to like have a long title, just to be like, this is like a funny, like, a, you know, like if you put humor in every situation, they're like, oh, they're going to try to be funny. So hopefully it's uh, not overdoing it. But it's just like, yeah, this trying to be funny, playing with the form, thinking outside the box kind of thing. So hopefully that's this, the vibe of the show. Well, I have to admit, it drew my attention because I keep <laughs> normal track of what's going on at Vulcan. And when I saw your name, and we, we'll obviously get into this throughout the course of the conversation, just uh, your meteoric rise over the last year or so. But I saw your name, so I was immediately interested. And then I saw the length of the title. I said, oh, they're, they're going to have some fun on Sunday <laughs> night. So I'm assuming that's what the plan is. You and several of your friends who you may or may not have met through Kill Tony are uh, just going to try and make some people laugh at Vulcan, huh? Yeah, should be good. You know, we do this every day. They're professionals. They uh, are some of the best at practicing and doing comedy. So I don't, I don't see how it could go wrong. And even if it does, that'd be funny. Even if it does, that's comedy. Yeah, that's part of the growing pains, right? Yeah, you're gonna see something real. So was it Kill Tony that really first started to put you on the map as a comedian? Yeah, I uh, got on Kill Tony. Tony got canceled for saying. Uh, the C word, uh, and then he, everyone thought he was racist against Asians, so then he had me come on board and sort of be the middleman. To prove otherwise? Yeah. Okay. And uh, when was that? That was almost a year ago. On May 31st, I sang the national anthem last year on the Kill Tony show, and then the week after, I became a regular. And uh, Wait a second. Was that your minute? Was singing the national anthem? Yeah. They didn't really have me do a set. Okay. But the week after, they said I could do a set. And then uh, and that's when I became a regular. Uh, and then that through that, I met Joe Rogan because uh, Tony introduced me to Joe. Um, and then I started opening up for him and then started uh, going to the arenas recently. So it was all kind of a gradual process. But Kill Tony is the, the ladder that really helped me really be seen by the people that I respected, my my elders. So I feel like it's not a, a uh, grand statement to say that your life has changed quite a bit in the last year plus now, huh? Yeah. I've heard Rogan mention on his podcast, one, he is extremely complimentary of you and your work ethic, but I think he also mentioned that 
at some point in the last year, year and a half, you were literally living out of your car trying yeah. to make the comedy thing work. Is that true? Yeah, I actually drove it here today. It's in the parking lot. You drove your former home here today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my mobile home. So did you move? How long have you been in Austin for then? Almost a year, a year and a month or two. Okay, so uh, you, you got on Kill Tony pretty much right when you moved into town and you were trying to figure figure out your way here. Yeah, I moved here March 20th around and then I got on Kill Tony a couple times and then I became a regular April, uh, June 7th, June 6th. And you moved from Washington State? Uh, before the pandemic, I was in New York City. Then the okay. pandemic hit and then I moved to Seattle, stayed with my parents and then moved to LA. Then I saw the numbers going up so then I camped out in the wilderness Stayed with my friend in Yuma, and then I was like, I could go to L.A. or I could go to Austin. It was like 50-50 for me. And I was like, let's go to Austin. I've never been there. I've been in L.A. I know what it's like. Let's try something new. And then everything uh, worked out uh, perfectly. Like, my dreams came true. So uh, I stayed here. I was going to move because I came in March. As soon as it hit July or June, I was going to move because you can't stay in your van. No. In, in uh, Texas. No, it's not practical to run the air conditioning in your car overnight yeah. while you're not driving any there. It's a, it's a waste of gas, and it's potentially toxic, too, I guess. Yeah, Austin's a pretty liberal city. I don't want to pollute. I got a diesel engine, which is <laughs> even worse. That will, uh, that will add to the pollution for sure. So did the comedic exodus that was happening from L.A. to Austin help make that decision for you at the time then? For sure. I moved here for Tony Hinchcliffe and Joe Rogan. Is that right? That I got to work with them is just so, so awesome. Oh, how wild. Well, yeah. how long have you been doing comedy for, though? I know you said you were in New York and in L.A. a little bit. Obviously, those are the two stand-up meccas yeah. uh, here in the country. You could throw Chicago in there as well, though it's maybe a little bit more about uh, sketch comedy and improv mm -hmm. than it is stand-up. So have you been at the stand-up game for a while? Yeah, I've been doing it nine years. Five mm. years in Seattle, three years in New York, and then one year here. Um, but I moved here because I wasn't really accepted in the New York scene. I wasn't really accepted. I mean, I was only there for three months, but it's an old guard system where it's mm. like more about kowtowing and, you know, like making friends more than doing comedy. I don't think it's a pure meritocracy, I think. There's a lot of fuckery going around, mm. and I didn't want to have to do that. So this is completely separate from that. This is just comedy. There's nothing else going on. So I that was really attractive to me. So that was New York, even at places like the Comedy Cellar, I'm assuming the Boston, anywhere else where you are able to do stand-up, you're also having to play a sort of political game at the same time, too? Yeah, I think like at that level, it's sort of a meritocracy. I've, I'm sure like comedy is all about looks, and you know that that plays a factor in it too. But to get to the comedy seller level, to get to that mid tier, the bar shows, you just have to, you know, be seen as someone who's popular more than someone who's funny, someone who's like cool to hang out with, has a certain look, uh, and to get to that mid tier is is a hard jump, and I, I think that is. Uh, not a fair system that they have so it's hard to like climb the ladder over there how did the scene in la compare la i really didn't get a good uh feel for la i was only okay. there a couple months okay um but uh yeah i i really can't say too much about la i enjoyed my time in la um and i think people were funny there were a lot of talented people there but it's just like that's where talented people go to get discouraged 
and uh, I yeah I mean they're so talented but it's like such a such a brutal system that it, it doesn't foster talent I mean talent goes there and they're awesome regardless in spite of the system not because of it um, but yeah I think that now that there's a third scene it'll open things up instead of just having a duopoly where they just control everything it'll be like more of a meritocracy because there's like a third scene that they have to compete with. Yeah, it really is more about the stand-up than anything else here. And even in New York, which has its own stand-up scene, there's always that added distraction of the entertainment business, looking for that next star, looking to that next person that they can sign on for a sitcom or potential sitcom or yeah. just sign to some sort of deal that will then ultimately neuter the stand-up side of things. Yeah, it's too alluring, that fame side. You end up chasing it, even if you don't real, even if you don't uh, consciously do it. Mm, that's interesting. So I remember seeing you for the first time. Gosh, it probably would have been last October or November, and it was going to see Rogan's show at Vulcan, which is usually, or I guess usually, I say usually at this point because I've seen all four of you guys every time I've gone out there, <laughs> and there's been the occasional special guest too. It's William Montgomery, you. Tony Hinchcliffe and Rogan. Mm -hmm. And the first time I saw you, I'm obviously open-minded with any stand-up who's going to get up on stage. If you have the support of Hinchcliffe and Rogan, I'm going to have some high expectations for uh -huh. you. But you walk on stage and you're a pretty unassuming dude. But as soon as you open your mouth and start to tell jokes, you're taking a freaking flamethrower to the place, man. <laughs> um, you've been at this game for nine years now. How much different are you a comedian right now than you were, say, even two or three years ago? Was there some sort of epiphanous moment or something that happened with you that really allowed you to, to let loose and do what it is that you're doing on stage now, whether it's at the Vulcan or whether it's at a, an arena in front of 20,000 people? Well, having Rogan's uh, backing really helps my confidence. I bet. Because it's like you're just playing. You're like, oh, isn't this funny to make the audience make this noise and to be like, have Rogan be like, yeah, I like that. That's, uh, I'm a he's a 30-year veteran and he approves of it. So it's like, uh, if he approves of it, then it's like, as if you don't like it, then, you know, like, it, obviously you're wrong or something. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, I think it's so important in comedy to have like that confidence because it is play. And if you don't have that kind of like, oh, I'm not sure. Uh, and then that, that adds like sort of an element of uh, fear, which isn't fun. And if you're just like going up there and just being confident, I think it's more fun because it's like, this is actually fun for me uh, to go up there and say things about, you know, like different uh, my race or like, you know, uh, like shocking things. Um, but yeah, the, the shocking, uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's, it, I became w way more aware of what I'm doing with the audience and what I want out of the audience and what I want to do up there. So I think that helped a lot. What you want out of the audience, you mean the sort of reactions that you want? Yeah. Cause like, it's not always laughter doing? necessarily. Yeah. Like, or maybe sometimes. Preaching or? Yeah. Okay. And uh, you've been at this nine years now. How old are you? 33. 33, okay. So you've been at this since you were in your mid-20s. Is Have you always known that you're a pretty funny person? Like, were you the, the kid in your family who was making everybody else laugh even when you were a preteen? <laughs> um, I was sort of like the rebellious person. Huh. And re rebellion took the form of humor for me, or okay. humor 
like the form of rebellion either way. <laughs> but I think it was a lot of like school is bullshit, you know, that kind of energy mm-hmm. and just making fun in, in a classroom setting of the structure or like what, what we were doing at the time. So that really informed my uh, humor, I think. And then just watching some of the best humor, like Ali G or uh, Trigger Happy TV or Longmont Potion Castle, just like uh, consuming media, I think helped my humor. Um, but yeah, I I always had ideas. Like I thought, oh, this is such a good idea. And then I had no avenue or outlet for it. And now comedy gives me an outlet to be like, oh, that actually wasn't a good idea. You just thought it was, and then you just slowly figure out which ideas are actually good. Like everyone thinks in here is great until you actually say it out loud. And then once you get a gauge, you can slowly like up up the ideas. But yeah, I think that's what it is for me. That's why I love Rogan so much is like he's an ideas guy. He has like a grand idea of what he's thinking about. And he, he makes things funny that he's already thinking about instead of like just pursuing like puns or something. He's already thinking about something and then he he makes that funny. Well, and he works at it too. I mean, you know, some people look at like a Michael Jordan and think that they're just that good. He's just that good at basketball. No, he had to put in hours upon hours of work to get good at various elements of basketball. The same thing happens with anything that a person becomes talented in. You may have a natural, a naturally great sense of humor, but there are different layers to making people laugh, right? You can make yourself laugh with an idea like you just talked about. You can maybe make a couple of your best friends laugh by saying that idea to them. But to make a room full of complete strangers laugh, it's going to require you to work on that idea and figure out exactly how you need to be presenting it to, one, keep them on their toes, but also keep them either off guard enough or uh, keep them, quote unquote, offended enough to where they can't help but to laugh at the end of whatever it is that you're saying to them. Yeah, it's a different dynamic as opposed to friends. Complete strangers is like, uh, yeah, it's different. It's not easier or harder. And like there are certain things that would work in a group of strangers that wouldn't work with friends. And it's just like being in that dynamic over and over again and putting in the hours, you know, 30 years of, of experience would uh, help you in that dynamic and figure out what that is. Like if you're in a, if you're talking to girls, you know, like they say you need to learn how to talk to girls, like in that dynamic, it's different than talking to a friend. And if you're just in that dynamic a lot, you figure out who you are and what you like to say and what makes you feel good and what they like to hear and what what works in that dynamic. So it's just figuring it out with an audience. So I've probably seen you perform four or five times at this point. The most recent was actually a week ago. My wife and kids were out of town, so I had the opportunity to do something on a Tuesday. Thought it would be a good idea to grab a good meal, go see the uh, the Vulcan show, and you're still killing it. You obviously have the standard jokes that you are telling, still killing audiences with, but I've also seen your act start to evolve, and I, I saw you try some things this most recent time that I hadn't heard out of you before. So I guess my question for you based on that is how often are you working to add that next joke or evolve an idea that is getting a certain amount of laughs to try and get even more laughs? Is that a daily process for you? Is that something that you're reassessing weekly to see what needs to be added to, what needs to be scrapped altogether, and if there's something brand new that you want to try out on a crowd on a given week? 
Yeah, the good thing about doing comedy full-time is that I'm always thinking about it, like in the shower, on the drive home. Uh, there's nothing else on my mind. I'm not worried about spreadsheets or an email that I have to send. Mm -hmm. So uh, whenever my mind is relaxed, I'm just sort of ruminating over it without even thinking about it sometimes. And then I consciously I write. I try to write 2,000 words a day. Uh, to varying degrees of success. <laughs> uh, some days I don't get there. Uh, and then I listen back to my sets. Uh, uh, you know, I record it. I audio record it. So mm -hmm. I listen back and allow oh, that work. I should add this. And then, Is that hard to do? Uh, a lot of people on radio have a hard time listening to themselves, <laughs> although it's very good for you to hear what it is that you need to be doing differently. Is that something that was difficult at first, even if you've gotten used to it now? Yeah, I used to listen to it. Then in New York, I stopped and there's like, I just recorded everything and there's like a huge backlog of just stuff I haven't listened to. Mm. Um, and then here I just started sort of listening to it. I like skip a couple, but I record every one uh, out of habit. But yeah, I, I think it's really helpful. Uh, it's painful, especially if you did bad and you have to listen to it. But then sometimes you listen and you're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Mm. I was just in the moment. You know, not really listening, but just thinking of the next thing to say. So I wasn't really getting an accurate read. Um, but yeah, like it, it garnered more laughs than you realized in the moment. Uh huh. Sometimes, oh, that's interesting. yeah. Sometimes you think you did well, and you're like, oh, that didn't do that well. Mm. It's just, uh, it's just tricky because like when I go up on stage and then I, I get off. I'm I have like an, a relationship with that set, and I'm like, oh, I did bad, I did good, and then that thing that I tell myself is like. Is that accurate? I have to think that's accurate or else I'm just going to go crazy. And if I listen back and I'm wrong about what I thought, then I'm like, well, I guess I don't know anything. And uh, It's hard to like reconfigure what you think about things. But I think it's good to uh, be closer to reality uh, and just be like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Or like it helps to listen back to be like, oh, I shouldn't take what I feel off stage so seriously because that's just emotional and it depends on certain factors like how I felt that day and if I thought I was uh, if I was insecure about my intellect or something hmm. um, like your mood for the day can affect how you're presenting your stand-up that night yeah oh wow I realized that would be the case but I guess so like even if you have it memorized you may not be able to put the normal amount of energy yeah into certain parts of certain jokes yeah you have to like be experiencing that joke as you're telling it. Mm. Even if it's a deadpan delivery, it helps to be feeling that for like when you came up with it, whatever that idea is. Like basketball, imagining the missing the, the, the basket and that dismay and conveying that to the audience, however it is that you feel dismay. Um, mm. Even if it's subtle, like the audience can tell. Cause that's I think humans are designed to like pick up cues from each other. Oh yeah, like facial cues are something that are universal. Even if we use different words, obviously with different languages, a smile, a smirk, a frown, yeah, shedding a tear, that's something yeah. that you can see the anguish or the joy on that person's face, even if you've never spoken with them before. Yeah, that's like uh, communication. That's like why our brains are so big. Is like to talk to each other and empathize and communicate. 
Yeah, the social, communal, creative abilities that we have with one another, the problem-solving abilities. Yeah. So I saw a picture from your social media. I guess it was from last weekend. Was it Madison Square Garden? Uh, or, it was MGM Grand Garden. MGM Grand, that's right, at, in uh, Vegas. Mm-hmm. It was you, Brian Simpson, who obviously does a phenomenal job with Roast Battle. Has he moved here on a full-time basis? He's here a lot now. Brian Simpson is going to move here, okay. he told us. So he's, he's going to move here. Hinchcliffe and Rogan. Mm-hmm. It was at an arena, probably what, 15,000, 20,000-seat arena? Uh, I think 17,000. Were you first in that lineup? I was first. I was opening it up. So how was that? Was that the most people you've performed in front of? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Uh, they were on board. They wanted to laugh. It was a great crowd. So you were getting you were getting the laughs where you needed to get the laughs then? Yeah. Good. They were loud. Yeah, they were they were excited. It was a great crowd. Have you ever felt anything like that before? Um, uh, I mean, I think that was the best version of it. Because you performed, I think you performed at a, an arena with Hinchcliffe in mm-hmm. Florida a few months back. Yeah, the Vice Star Arena yeah. in Jacksonville. Yeah. I did the Dickies Arena in Fort Worth. Yeah. And then I did the Chicago Fox Theater, or uh, Fox Theater in Detroit. Okay. And uh, yeah, those are all great. Those all helped me prepare for this set. Um, and then hopefully this set will prepare me for the next one. But, uh, yeah, I felt like this one, they were all in tune and they were ready and it was exciting. Is the, is having, is being surrounded by the crowd disorienting at all? Obviously in the traditional stand-up setup, you're on stage and everybody is in front of you, but you're surrounded by potential laughers and I guess potential hecklers too in a setting like that. I kind of like it. Do you? Yeah. At the Vulcan. There's like this section over here that I sometimes forget about to turn to, <laughs> and I just deliver it straight down the middle. Uh, but at a if it's in the round, then you turn from here, here, here. So it's you're just like, kind of walking around. Yeah, mm. you're never your back's never to, uh, you know, like uh, you know, a large part of the audience is looking at you in the front. So you can never really turn the back on the. Well, you're always having the back to the audience, but you're also always facing the audience so it doesn't matter where you turn like at the vulcan if i turn like too far to one side then these people can't see you but um yeah there it's like you're supposed to have your back to them it doesn't feel weird to have your back to them Mm. so it's i don't know it's it's cool because it's like a a theater is like five thousand people so you have a theater on on all four sides of you so you can just choose to pick whichever theater you want to perform the next joke to. So it's pretty crazy. So I need to preface this by saying I love the Vulcan. I've spent a lot of money at the Vulcan in the last year watching stand-up comedy. The Vulcan is a very unique place for stand-up. <laughs> the The two-story bit is its own thing. It's like the uh, the bar that they opened in Cocktail, the 1980s movie Cocktail, where it's just like it's just this strange almost euphoric setting, but there is a bit of a disconnect having sat on the second level before with what's going on on the first floor. You don't feel the laughs hit as hard. (laughs) I don't know how that feels for you on stage, but even downstairs, there are different levels. Like if you're in that very first row next to the stage, as I said to Donnell Rawlings a couple months ago, I mean, you could practically kiss the shoes of the comedian if they're standing at the front of the stage. (laughs) Now, anybody who's performed there, you know, to take a couple of steps back so that everybody can see you and you don't feel like you're right on top of those people. But uh, the best seats, in my opinion, are those third and fourth rows where you get the high top tables and you're almost eye to eye with the comedians. 
but that's kind of your home club right now. So you're, uh, I guess you get used to things being a little bit out of the ordinary to where when you go to a more traditional club, it's, uh, it's, it's probably pretty simple for you. I'm yeah. Guessing. You can make eye contact with people right? and the same level. Yeah. You don't have to look up and down. Uh huh. Um, but yes, it works in a strange way. Yeah. It's not the ideal comedy setup at all, but, uh, when there's a laugh there, it pops. The yeah. surfaces are so hard that it bounces off. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I uh, need to incorporate the second floor more. I usually just perform for the first floor unless something happens up top. I, I've got, I have a little bit of PTSD from sitting up top because the last time I was there, it was for uh, Duncan Treshel's show two months ago. And the show itself was fine, but the girl that I was sitting next to had zero comedy club etiquette where she was not only providing like mystery science theater level commentary throughout the setups for jokes and just clapping at random times and laughing where there wasn't a punchline, but then the punchline would hit and it was funny and she would just sit there totally silent, which honestly Hans annoyed me more than some of the other stuff. Cause it's <laughs> like, if you're going to be this obnoxious for every other point in the joke, at least have the wherewithal, the courtesy to laugh at what the person is trying to do. here. <laughs> so anyhow, yeah. I, had, I actually had to walk out of that show. I told, I told the Vulcan guys, I'm like, look, you may want to take care of her. You may want to get her to calm down. Cause I feel like she's affecting everybody else's ability to enjoy the show, but that's kind of <laughs> it for me. I hit, had to hit eject there. Yes. Yeah, I think some people just want to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. They want to be unique. And, uh, that's, you don't always have, if you want to be unique, there's a, avenue for that you don't have to be unique in a stand-up comedy show like that those are people that don't have an outlet so they have to express themselves yeah. in weird ways but if they were really like good at being unique then take up painting but they take it out <laughs> in the in the worst possible way yeah yeah it's it's not about you don't try yeah. and make it about you if you're going to a comedy show sit there Clap occasionally, laugh <laughs> where you're supposed to laugh, and otherwise shut the hell up, right? Yeah, this isn't your moment to shine. If it is, that's really sad. <laughs> if it's your moment to shine, it's because you're getting kicked out of the show. <laughs> and you've just embarrassed yourself, and you've embarrassed the table that you're with, too. Yeah. So I think I feel like I've seen you starting to promote you headlining places outside of Austin. Is that beginning to happen now, too? Yeah, these clubs are hitting me up. I'm going to Florida soon. Naples and Tampa and Winter Haven. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm beginning to sell tickets. People know me through Kill Tony and Joe Rogan. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's an amazing experience. It doesn't happen to very many comedians. So I'm trying to capitalize on it, uh, for all the nine years when it wasn't happening. Have you had to deal with heckling much? I feel like in the shows that I've seen you at Vulcan, the crowd has been pretty tame, pretty yeah. respectful. Yeah, not too much. Good. It's uh, it's really a lot harder to heckle than people think it'd be, because uh, the whole audience is not going to be on your side. No, <laughs> I tell the person heckling to shut the hell up too. As a matter of fact, if they're right next to me. Yeah, because they're, they're all there to watch the show. So you're fighting exactly. against the audience. Right. And unless the comedian is like saying something horrible or nobody's on board with the comedian then it's going to be an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is your moment to shine. Like, this is what you choose to do. That's like, you're like, it's hard to do comedy and you're making it even harder for this relationship to happen. And it's easy to destroy something and people don't like, like, you know, we all took time off and we're here to see this thing happen. We don't want to see it 
ruined. But uh, if you can slam hecklers, uh, that's really funny. But usually the people that get good at that are the people that aren't good at the stand-up comedy part. So they have to deal with hecklers a lot and they get good at that. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of comedians like uh, Maria Bamford uh, says that she's not good at dealing with hecklers because mm. her jokes are so good. So, uh, that's right. yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned some of the comedic influences that you had when you were younger and you thought that you might be funny, but you mentioned you didn't mention any stand up comedy. You mentioned Ali G and a couple of other shows. Were there any stand-up comedians that started to make that impression on you that made you wanted to, want to enter comedy in that regard? I didn't really consider entering stand-up comedy for a while, but I was I loved stand-up comedy. I loved Brian Regan. Okay, was probably my first comedian, and then I loved Joe Rogan. Like further down the road, yeah, I thought his comedy was super underrated. Um, and then uh, the Comedy Central presents. I watched a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Dimitri Martin yeah. stood out to me. Uh, Greg Fitzsimmons, I remember, um, and then others. I uh, I don't really remember. I know Greg Giraldo had a Comedy Central presents, but Giraldo yeah. is one of the greats. Yeah, the obesity epidemic <laughs> was a great bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, some guy in my school classroom tried to do that bit, like he just came up with it, and I, I remember that. Him doing the obesity epidemic. Wait, bit. he tried to he tried to rip uh, rip Geraldo off yeah. like Leary used to rip Bill Hicks off in the smoking yeah. bits. Oh, that's ridiculous! Did yeah. you call him out for that? No, he bombed, so I just let him <laughs> deal with it. That's a punishment in its own right. Yeah. <laughs> so you've you've obviously uh, your career has launched uh, into the stratosphere over the last year. Do you drive around to this day in your former home, pinching yourself just? <laughs> marveling at the fact that your dreams have actually come come through in such a swift amount of time yeah i mean it it, it happened in a way that i never thought it would yeah. in austin in front of with joe rogan and tony hinchcliffe and it's just like uh it's so surreal like i just feel like uh the more that i don't believe it the more uh, down to earth I'll be and the more better I'll be able to deal with it so uh, I I try to like gain whatever happiness I can through it but really I'm just trying to like keep doing what I've been doing I think like it's it's not too good to like revel in it or stay in it like there's so much work that I still have to do that mm-hmm. I mean it's a great boost for sure but it's uh I don't want to be distracted by it or just like revel in it too much. I don't, uh, I don't, I wouldn't enjoy my life if I just sat back and relaxed now. It's, uh, it's a lot more pressure every week. I have to come up with new bits. So it's, and, uh, bombing on kill Tony sucks. So I'm just like trying to motivate myself to, to not do that. So, I mean, it, it's great because I get to do all these awesome shows but then the bombs feel even worse because then people are looking at you like, ugh, this guy is the Kill Tony regular that opens up for Joe Rogan. So the bar is just higher now. And if there's anyone funnier than me, then I'm like, oh, this guy should actually be where I am. And so the insecurities are, are more and the the negative emotions can be uh, more overwhelming. But um, yeah, that's why doing those arenas 
are so good to sort of balance it out. You know, the high highs and low lows are so more extreme now uh, than they were in the past. But it, the thing about comedy is like I've been doing it nine years, so I've been experiencing those ups and downs sure. in a very gradual way, and then it's like going up and down more now. So I've had sort of a, a nine years of practice doing that stuff. So I just try to ignore it all and just sort of be try to be in the middle as things go up and down just try to stay uh not not get too high and not get too down on myself operate with a certain stoicism while also using all of those things as motivators to continue driving you towards success mm -hmm. continue forcing you to work your ass off to get even funnier than you are now mm -hmm. i think that's going to help sustain that success for you all right last question hans I'm not going to try and recite the name of the show on Sunday. I've already forgotten it. I would have to look up my computer screen again. But for anybody considering going to the Vulcan this Sunday to check out your, the show that you're hosting, you're going to be telling jokes, obviously, and you're going to be uh, setting up some folks who may or may not have been a part of Kill Tony in the past. Are there any names you can give people or any other details you can maybe help entice some folks yeah. to 6th Street? Derek Poston, Casey Rocket. Uh, Mickey Housley, who just opened up for Rogan yesterday, a very funny comedian. Um, and then some others. I have it on my phone, but the, they're some of the best comics in Austin. And uh, they're some of the best comics that moved here from all over the country. Uh, and this is like the comedy mecca. So if you want to be on, on, uh, on board with the next comedy wave, this is, this is where it's happening. And uh, this is where you can see them where you can see them starting out, where we're going to start out this comedy movement that's unique in terms of comedy and art in general, where we just have this community of just comedians doing it with each other, um, purely without any outside industry or influence, just for the art of it. So I think it, it's a great springboard for art and the way that we should be doing art in the future. Is Casey Rocket Bizarro... William Montgomery? <laughs> yeah. Man. Which William Montgomery is already bizarro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I guess regular William Montgomery then, because I saw him at Kill... The one time I went to kill Tony, it was a few months ago, and I saw him, and then Tony brought Montgomery up afterwards. <laughs> it, was, it was a beautiful train wreck, man. It was a beautiful train wreck. It's going to be a great show. Make sure to check it out. You can go to VulcanATX.com to grab yourself some tickets. DJ Hans Kim is the uh, social media follow. Make sure to check him out there. Or if you're watching this outside of Austin, he's going to be coming to a town near you before too long. Well worth the price of admission. Hans Kim, thank you so much today. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forger Digital. And thank you to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. To hear more of his work, go to GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>